philosophy textbook, there'll be certain moral dilemmas and there'll be certain like quandaries that are posed about which of two choices you can take. But one thing that's interesting to me is how by the time that situation is already described, that the very act of describing it is already, for me at least, an ethical process. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a happy life, a more knowledgeable life. And for today's episode, we have author of Moral Articulation on the Development of New Moral Concepts, philosophy professor Matthew Congdon. So Gwen, let me ask you a really quick question. Sure. Can you translate what you just said into English? (laughs) Well, that's, that's what this episode is about. We're going to be talking about moral theory. Now, I actually really like moral theory. A lot of people think that it's just about finger wagging. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Do you help the old lady across the street? But actually, moral theory is much more complex. And it is the foundation of law, which is your wheelhouse, Rudy. But this idea of what constitutes a right or a wrong action. So philosophers have been debating this for a long time. What is the criteria, the characteristics? What Matthew's done quite beautifully in his book is he's looking at the language in which we use to discuss the moral issue in the first place. And we also have to envision that there might be moral issues in the future that we don't actually have the language yet, that when we get the language, it helps us frame and how to articulate the moral question at hand. Yeah, this episode, I'm not going to lie, I'm not the academic on the show, a light bulb goes on during the episode and I had an aha moment. And for any of my fellow transportation nerds that listen to the show, I think you're going to love how my aha moment translates into, oh, wait a minute. I actually experienced this. There was this new concept that I kept reading about and hearing about that I didn't understand that I literally is brand new to me and you know other transportation nerds in the world, and that's transportation equity. What does that actually mean? Well, I went out and did my own research and I came up with my own definition because it's new. Like I, I didn't know that there was something inequitable about transportation options. And I applied Matthew's teachings here. You got to look at history. You got to look how things evolve over time to become a right or a wrong. When you look at things through a new lens and you put a definition or you put a phrase to it, then you can actually define it. I loved it. Uh, one of my more popular Forbes.com articles, which you know, if you wouldn't mind, we should link it here, where I define transportation equity and I bring it into the show. And there's probably many other instances, and we talk about some of those instances during the show, Gwen, right? Where like things that weren't even conceptually thought of as wrong in the past, now we're looking at them through a new moral lens. Yeah, we're definitely learning what we didn't know we didn't know. Okay, let's talk moral articulation with Professor Matthew Condon. All right, well, let's get into it. So we'll start. Matthew, welcome to Good is in the Details. The title of your book caught my attention, Moral Articulation, the Development of New Moral Concepts. And as somebody in philosophy, I'm steeped in teaching the old moral concepts. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people use the term morality. Everybody thinks that they've got it. They've got a sense of it. They'll charge people with being immoral or something is immoral. But I think we almost 
haven't evolved from the classic Euthyphro dialogue where we're very willing to impose moral judgment. But if we were asked by Socrates, well, could you define it? We might be in some sort of a conundrum. So I guess I'd like to start out with what drew you in this branch of philosophy to moral theory? Is there something that just ignited your soul that you're like, I need to write and read more about this and give us maybe a framework for our listeners who might be new to moral theory? Yeah. So thanks so much, uh, Rudy and Gwendolyn, for having me on. This is wonderful. Yeah, I share that sense that there's, as you put it, everyone thinks they've got it. Part of what I wanted to think about when I was thinking about this book was, well, by the time we start using certain concepts or words to describe a moral situation or a moral dilemma that we're facing or a moral decision, or we're pondering the meaning of some experience we've faced, those concepts and words that we're using have already gone through a kind of very difficult process of articulation. We've either in past generations or in our own history, we've learned how to use these concepts and words. I wanted to think about that, like kind of slow down. Like um, a lot of the times if you open like a moral philosophy textbook, there'll be certain moral dilemmas and there'll be certain like quandaries that are posed about which of two choices you can take. But one thing that's interesting to me is how by the time that situation is already described, that the very act of describing it is already, for me at least, an ethical process. And I wanted to I wanted to sort of slow down a bit and think about that difficult process of just finding the right words to express and articulate what kind of situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, I um, thought that was so fascinating. The language that we're using in the first place is already setting up maybe what kind of a thing that we would think is the right or wrong direction to go. Yeah, exactly. When I think just maybe go as you you're asking about sort of moral philosophy and moral theory more generally. Whenever I think about, I guess, what I want from moral theory or why I do it or what sparked my interest, um, I mean, there are a lot of philosophers who got me into this. I love Aristotle. Uh, Hegel's really big for me. Wittgenstein. Feminist theory was a big motivator to get me into this project. I'll just mention one in particular, one philosopher that's been on my mind a lot recently and was on my mind writing this book is a philosopher named Iris Murdoch. She was like this 20th century philosopher. She also wrote 26 novels. She kind of mm -hmm. shares this distinction with Sartre and Beauvoir, who I know you're interested in being both a novelist and a philosopher. But one thing that she emphasizes continually that I find really inspiring and I think kind of allows me to be motivated to do moral philosophy, she always emphasizes this deep continuity between our everyday ordinary lives and moral theory. So sometimes it might seem like moral theory is this kind of like abstract activity that comes in in opposition to ordinary life and kind of corrects it. But one thing that Murdoch's constantly emphasizing is that as soon as we're doing any kind of minimally reflective activity, you know, someone has died and we're thinking about the meaning of loss and death. We're wondering like how we can be better people. But then we start just taking one step further and start asking, well, what are the concepts I'm using in order to think about what a better version of me would be? You know, I start thinking about like, well, I want to be happy or I want to be just or I want to be virtuous. And I start thinking about the nature of those concepts. By the time you're doing that, which I take it everyone does all the time, you're already doing some kind of moral philosophy. So I was really, I, I've always been inspired by her thought that moral philosophy and moral theory is kind of a continuation of a kind of just slightly more reflective and in some cases, more structured continuation of the kind of reflections upon our everyday ethical life that, you know, ordinary people are always engaging in. And so then for me, again, I'm the person who constantly feels like dissatisfied with the way I've put things into words. Just that struggle to find the right words or concepts is very much part of that 
continuity that Murdoch describes between just being an ordinary, minimally reflective moral person and being a moral philosopher. And so, yeah, moral theory for me just kind of responds to this very human need to just become better and do so in a way that's reflective and critical rather than dogmatic. Uh, again, lots of different avenues into moral philosophy for me, but right now, Iris Murdoch has been this real source of inspiration because of that thought that she has. I love Iris Murdoch. I think that's really cool. I think that for a long time, there's been this idea that if you are moral, then somehow you're not going to be enjoying your life. Um, that seems <laughs> to be, you know, like just <laughs> like, uh, yeah, totally. what was it? Even Billy Joel sings, you know, only the good die young. So then, and that song is actually, I re-listened to that song. That song is problematic. But anyway, and I like Billy Joel. <laughs> anyway, I think that this idea that what it means to be moral, that somehow that's getting rid of the emotions, the pleasures, the happiness, that that is a, a strict life that is not good. And that when you are enjoying your life, you're somehow doing something wrong. Something you put in your book was you were talking about the social context of how things are set up in such a way for us to only think about things in a particular way. Like you gave the notion of gender, which is a very hot topic right now, but you said we've even organized everything physically, like his and her bathrooms, toys. We've designed everything to fit that narrative without even questioning that narrative. So if we're constantly bombarded and we're set up in this framework of language and even physical structures that are telling us how to be, how do we even go about questioning it if it's all we know? Like, how do you yeah. look outside of it? I mean, one, one of my solutions is to travel because when you travel and you see that things are organized differently, then you recognize, oh, there's a different way to go about things. A lot of times things are posed to the American culture as a, you know, as a false dilemma that there's just two options and you have to do one or the other. And so then you hear people repeat that and talk in those terms. So I thought it was so fascinating that you're like, wait, wait, we need to work on this articulation that we're, might, we're set up. I think I'm rambling now. I guess I just want to ask, how do you go outside of what it is that you know? How do you even question what it is that you think is right or wrong? Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, it's like the question, right? I mean, can I just go back and say something about one thing you said before you posed the question, which is about the like feeling like there's a opposition between morality and happiness. Because mm -hmm. um, I really, I really love the, you've got this wonderful invocation of Socrates that begins your episodes. I think that expresses the kind of spirit I'd prefer to see in moral philosophy where happiness is actually, or some notion of flourishing is the end of moral philosophy. I was even thinking like, so this is a bit of a tangent based on some things you said in setting up your question, but I have a three and a half year old named Theo. He, he'll be four in January. He has these board books that are maybe I don't know if you've heard of them. They're called Big Ideas for Little Philosophers. And there's like mm. one on Socrates and one on Aristotle and one on Rene Descartes and one on Simone de Beauvoir. But every single one of them starts the same way. It says, I've read this about 6,000 times. Anyone who has a kid knows this. If you've read one book, you've read it 6,000 times to your kid. A philosopher is a person who loves wisdom. Wisdom means knowing things that can help you live better and be happy. And I really, I think that's easier said than done. I also think that sometimes... Sometimes, yeah, given certain social situations, like the ones you're alluding to, gaining that kind of wisdom isn't like a rosy path. It involves something like a ruthless critique of everything existing. But yeah, I like that sentiment. <laughs> so I think I agree with you in not wanting to oppose the pursuit of morality, the philosophical pursuit of morality and happiness. But anyway, I guess I come back to the question of how we sort of break out of 
the set of concepts and words we work with. I mean, this was kind of the, these are the cases that were, I was thinking about that got me really going in the book. I was thinking about cases where certain like new concepts and new words actually literally needed to be invented in order for human beings to give voice to certain kinds of moral experiences or values or experiences of wrongdoing and injustice that they desperately wanted to be able to put into words. One of the ways I start the book is by thinking about a whole bunch of moral concepts that just, um, even though they seem so familiar to us didn't exist about a hundred years ago or less. There's the concept genocide uh, wasn't invented or coined. The term wasn't coined until 1942 by this Polish lawyer named Raphael Lemkin. Sexism wasn't a word until the 60s when it was coined in analogy to the term racism, which was only coined a few decades before that. Sexual harassment is a term that was coined in most accounts, say 1975. These cases like really bring up the question you raised, which is, well, it actually seems there is this need to not just work with the concepts that were already in wide circulation. In fact, it's, if you take the sexual harassment case, it's not just that we're missing a concept to name this sort of unwelcome, uninvited sexual attention in the workplace. But part of the problem is that there was a set of concepts that were already kind of piling up and like too available and too ready for us to interpret those cases. Like, oh, that's flirtation. You know, like think of like Mad Men or those kinds of situations. That's just flirtation or that's he was paying you a compliment or that's seduction or there's a whole sort of patriarchal set of concepts that would be the lens through which we would view those kinds of cases. So yeah, I was really interested in these kinds of instances where precisely what's needed is to work upon a kind of initial set of experiences that might be shared. You can think of like feminist consciousness raising groups where people got together and tried to articulate, put into words this very widely shared but difficult to express phenomenon that would later eventually be named sexual harassment. But try to transition from like an inarticulate, non-linguistic experience of suffering or emotion and bring that into a linguistically formulable claim that could be made to other people that could be expressed publicly. That's the kind of case that I wanted to explore in this book. I love this. I'm just thinking that what we have for the future, because I'm guessing maybe one of the trajectories where new words are going to be needed is when we have new situations that we haven't encountered before, we haven't had to deal with um, mm -hmm. something like with the environment, I would mm -hmm. imagine. So then that would go into even Rudy's realm of transportation, the way in which we talk about how mm -hmm. we get from point A to point B, that there's going to be moral claims attached to that as we learn more about the environment or even with technology or science in general, we're going to learn more things and then we're going to need some sort of a word to navigate the rightness or wrongness of how we're encountering such things. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think of ethical life as like a, a moving target for this reason. So yeah, we have these, as you said earlier, these ancient moral concepts, the old ones like justice and courage and virtue and right and wrong. But I mean, we're a very specific species living on a specific planet that's and we're evolving. History is moving. Technology changes. The kind of environmental examples are a great one. I think it matters very much whether someone talks about, you know, uses concepts like climate crisis, for example. There's been this shift that people have talked about moving away from, say, phrases like global warming to climate crisis. Crisis captures both, you know, the sense of like this tipping point and emergency in a way that warming doesn't. But I think we're still very much struggling to develop the right kind of vocabulary. I was reading a book recently that was arguing that a word that I thought was just like had been around for much, much longer, just the concept of the environment 
or our contemporary conception of the environment, that it's really this kind of value-laden term that brings in all kinds of issues concerning like ecology and our interchange with nature is very much a kind of a post-World War II development that's part of this struggle to try to think about, okay, how do we talk about, yeah, looming global climate crisis? But I think it's a really good example that you raise of a case where moral articulation is badly needed. I mean, I guess that's what I was thinking is in your book, I'm like, there's going to be in a hundred years, there's going to be words and ways that we're thinking about things that we're just not now because the situation hasn't come up or we're going to be reevaluating. It's kind of interesting. There was something at the beginning of this year in 2022, I started noticing in a lot of the transportation articles when I do research. So Matthew, I write for Forbes. I write like a transportation piece. Like it's only like four or five times a year. And there was this concept that kept coming up in 2022 that I found really fascinating and I really dug into for for a lot of reasons, and that's transportation equity, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what's that mean? Like, oh, that's like a new concept there. And I explored it, and basically what it kind of came down to, it's kind of strange. It's like like a hard concept to understand. It's I tried to come up with my own definition in, in an article, and what I came up with was equitable transportation is the movement of people means to carry, move, or convey people in a fair and impartial way, right? So like, thinking about it this way, you know, the rich usually have access to cars. And so people that don't have money have to use, typically they use public transportation or public transit, or they use something else that uh, that they can afford. And my analysis of what does transportation equity actually come down to is the value of time. That's the big differentiator. Like, Okay, so you have this transportation system up and this the system says it can literally take anybody from point A to point B, like no matter how much money you have, there's even free services. But at the end of the day, how much time does it take for somebody to go from point A to point B? And how much time was wasted? And is the service that's run, are the buses running on time? Are the trains running on time? And what it ultimately comes down to is, you know, the rich, quote unquote, have more time because they can get from point A to point B faster, typically, whereas the poor are stuck losing even more time that they could be using to get them out of their economic situation. And so that was kind of like my brief philosophical exploration of what I found to be a new topic, although, you know, I'm I'm sure it's been around for a long time. And the reason why it was such a big deal was there was an infrastructure bill that came out and there was a, a billion dollar discretionary grant to reconnect communities that have been divided by transportation, right? So like highways have broken up downtowns, transportation systems has divided neighborhoods. And so they're looking at ways to bring these neighborhoods back together and to provide equitable transportation. So sorry, I, I, I that's it, Gwen. I'll, I'll get off of the transportation topic. I no, I think it's perfect. I think it's, it's perfect. A, yeah, you're a moral articulator. I mean, <laughs> what, I'll just note one thing that I really love about the example is, I mean, this goes back to this Again, it's like a continuity between the struggle to just put into words what you find meaningful at a kind of everyday immediate level and the struggle that a a moral theorist or philosopher has to try to find like conceptual frameworks for theorizing something. In your example, you move from something like quite concrete, something that's 
really everyday buses and trains and just getting from one place to the other. And in thinking about it and reflecting upon it, it leads you off into reflections about the nature of time and value and justice, the things that you would sort of more stereotypically associate with the things that would preoccupy a philosopher, you know, thinking about time or in its value. But there's a kind of natural extension from one to the other. And I'm really interested in this, how as we're, and I, I very much would want to say like something like transportation equity should be thought of as a moral concept. We shouldn't just reserve the label moral concept for the sort of time honored ones, like you know, big, big ones like justice or virtue or rightness or wrongness. But yeah, these kind of, oh, it's actually, this is a great way to, to bring in your title. The good is in the details. So mm-hmm. like you can't articulate big, like platonic concepts like good without articulating the details. Like we don't have any sense of what goodness is in a human life, unless you get down to the nitty gritty about how our buses are going to work and uh, and the forms of, of inequality and injustice that result from not having well-functioning transportation systems, for example. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's so interesting because like the other day, I was trying to get back into using public transportation, getting used to it after, after COVID. And there's like all these improvements that are going on, like they're building this like better electrical wiring. And, and, and so the, the, everything's kind of disrupted, right? Like the whole system is kind of disrupted. And, and I found myself on a train line and literally the train stopped at a station. I guess I didn't read something. And then the train started going backwards instead of going forwards. And I was like losing my mind going, oh, so I got off at the next exit. What did I do? I opened up my phone. I turned on Uber and Uber got me home. I was able to do that. Right. Like I had the means to do something like that. And it just kind of hit me like a lot of people out there don't have that. Did they put up the best signage? Did they did they provide the best details to tell people, no, you need to get off of this train and go over there and go there? Was it in multiple languages? Like how equitable was this disruption? Basically, my whole mind thinking about morality and thinking about time and thinking about economics all revolves around transportation in, in a lot of ways, because I just think that's, that's just the root of everything. Because, you know, yes, okay, during the pandemic, most of us were stuck at home, but, but still our economy still needed to continue to run. We still needed to get food. We still needed to get goods. And that's still all transportation. Like, I think the whole world revolves around transportation. And since I consider myself a master of that, I consider myself the master, a master of the universe. And I understand that arrogance is, is not Therefore. moral. So I'm sounding very immoral right now. I just want to throw that out. No, wait. I think Aristotle actually put pride to be one of the virtues. It's not until I think Christianity where that gets knocked out. But I think it has to be an appropriate level. It has to be an appropriate mm-hmm. level of pride, whatever whatever it is. So Rudy, you're you're in good company with the ancient Greeks, I think. Really, they would they would say I'm a master of the universe because now I now I'm really gonna actually read the Because otherwise I was add that to your LinkedIn. Them. Well, you know, last time when we had the conversation with Rich and we were talking about BMI and health, a a new term has come up now that was um, fat phobia. And so that would be another cultural issue of we've got this idea of shaming people. You've got a diet culture, all sorts of foods. You've got drugs, you've got gyms, then you've got fast foods that now we're measuring the moral worth of a person according to how much or how little they are doing and it's showing up in their physical body. And that seems to be a relatively new thing. Or is it a new thing? I don't know. Would that be an example of some sort of a, like, we're caught up in a structure that is forcing us to even think about something like fat phobia, whereas 
I lived in Belgium for a while. There's no diet culture there. Like it doesn't exist. There's no giant diet food section in the grocery stores, but people walk, they have smaller meals. They take a lot longer. Like that notion isn't really there in the same way it is here in the States. Mm -hmm. I would consider that an example. I mean, generally I think about, so let's just back up and ask maybe a more general question, which is, you know, what is a moral concept? And there's a lot you could say about that. One way I think about concepts is, is there kind of like orientations for vision or their orientations for our, the way we view the world? And sometimes they're like reorientations. So to coin a phrase like, yeah, whether it's fat phobia or going back a few decades, like homophobia or transphobia, part of what those concepts are doing is trying to reorient the way we inhabit our world. So yeah, I would think of that as the kind of case. I do have a question about whether, like, I would have to think about that kind of example. I do think some, the coining of some new concepts, I think of as less sort of um, involving less dramatic changes in the way we think about morality than others. So like the term like cyberbullying didn't exist before the 80s or so. But, and, you know, and you don't find cyberbullying in, in Aristotle's ethics because it wasn't necessary <laughs> and you don't find it in Kant or anything. But arguably, like we had an existing concept of bullying and then we kind of attached to it you know we, we just extend the concept bullying to include like well now there's like new ways we can like demean and mock each other we could do it through this forum like the internet but i do think there are others that so arguably i might be wrong about that but arguably there are concepts like that are cases of yeah moral articulation but they don't involve like necessarily a kind of paradigm shift in the way that we view things necessarily they just extend existing moral categories into slightly new places or give them a wider scope Whereas really, I mean, you could see like, say, from some of the examples I was uh, citing earlier, the struggle to bring the concept genocide into an international vocabulary, or I mean, going back to the example of sexual harassment, the, the invention of the term sexual harassment comes as part of like a much broader decades or centuries long set of struggles uh, in women's movements and feminist movements to develop whole new vocabularies for thinking about gender-based violence, you know, so it comes along with like domestic violence or domestic abuse and date rape, those are a whole constellation of new concepts like that. I'm interested in like primarily in those kinds of cases where not only adding in like a more piecemeal sense to our existing moral vocabulary, but bringing in that new set of concepts poses a broader challenge to the way we think at, at a much more structural level. And as you were saying like earlier, I mean, once we start bringing in new concepts in relation to say gender, that's going to affect not just the way we think and the way we inhabit the world, but the actual physical material structure of the world itself. There's the example that you gave. If we have a binary conception of gender, we will, we're going to build buildings and bathroom facilities in a specific way and have designed children's toys in a specific way. Sexual physical world will change as well. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And it's the same thing for people with disabilities in terms of the structure of designing, you know, exits, how you get in and out of buildings are things like that ramps that it's all that structure is all with in mind is supposed to represent equity and access. Since you like Iris Murdoch, and I, I like mm -hmm. the existentialist, I love Iris Murdoch, Murdoch too. What role do you think is in storytelling? Since if you just want to come to some sort of like a prescriptive measure or finger wagging or saying morality is, you know, you do these things or you don't do those things, that doesn't seem to really inspire anybody or really connect in the same way. Like I can explain Kant's categorical imperative, but I don't know if that's really going to make, let's say, one of my students walk out into the world and be a more ethically minded person. 
I think this is the conundrum that Simone de Beauvoir found herself in. She describes as a young student how she would read about these amazing philosophical worlds and think that that was incredible. And then she would sit down and read fiction and be in love with that medium as well. So do you think that storytelling helps us with the articulation of morality? Do you think that that's a possibility? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Okay, one example that I used uh, at one point in the book where I turned to a novel by E.M. Forster called Morris, which is also happens to be a, a movie from the 80s, but with Hugh Grant. Morris takes place in the early 20th century, involves two men, Morris and Clive, who are at a kind of like Oxbridge type university. They gradually come to realize that they are attracted to each other. They're in love with each other, but they live in this context that makes it extremely difficult to express their mutual love and their attraction for each other. This is a good example because if they draw from existing vocabularies and concepts, they're going to get very different interpretations of this mutual attraction they have as two men. Religion will filter it through some kind of lens of sin and medicine. They go to a doctor or one of them goes to a doctor at one point who compassionately, um, <laughs> like, you know, not without compassion, like diagnoses Morris as having a congenital illness called homosexuality. You know, law will interpret it through a phrase of like illegality. So it's really up to them. I would very much use the phrase like storytelling. They have to tell a story about themselves and their friendship together. There's no blueprint that they can rely on for what a flourishing love between two men will look like in this time and place. It just doesn't exist for them. And they are kind of thrown into the deep end. I mean, going back to, you mentioned the existentialists, they're really thrown. They're just thrown into a situation with no clear guidebook about how they can make this work. It's a kind of a beautiful story. They sit together, they have conversations, they uh again, for the philosophers out there, they read the symposium together and that part of their kind of telling a story to themselves and each other and gradually realizing that they have these feelings for each other. They come up with metaphors that they use to describe what the beauty they see in each other. They kind of do two things at once. They, and this is part of the story I tell about the development of new moral concepts generally, doing two things that kind of might seem initially to pull in different directions, but they're on the one hand, they're striving to be faithful to real feelings that they already had in a relationship that they already had. So there's a sense in which they're just trying to get things right. There's a kind of um, epistemological element. Depending on how they articulate themselves and their relationship, they could be deluded or they could be more discerning. There are standards of rightness and, or correctness, I guess I should say here. But like going back to the storytelling point, they're also transforming and maturing and developing their love through this kind of storytelling about who they are. It's a strange kind of case where the articulation doesn't just strive to be faithful to some object like, oh, well, our love means this. And as soon as they define it properly, they can be done. Their love is something that as they articulate it, the love itself, the object that they're articulating grows and matures and develops over time. I won't give any spoilers. Whether it ends tragically or happily, that captures for me something of the structure of articulation because it follows very much a kind of narrative arc. I do think storytelling is massively important. And mm. then I think when you zoom out, so or maybe like expand up from like the intimate case of Morris and Clive and just bring that to something like, okay, we have large scale social movements of a whole bunch of Morris's and Clive's trying to expand our conceptions of love and kinship and sexuality. They're doing something very similar. They're both trying to faithfully say something about who we are as humans and what we need and get that correct in some sense. But they're also doing something quite creative and kind of expanding what the possibilities for human flourishing are, at least with respect to gender and sexuality and um, loving, loving each other. I am, um, Matthew, I'm just... 
I love your work because you've you've got me thinking a lot. I mean, I know every once in a while I teach The Fall by Camus, and I always have to sit with myself for a while after it, it never fails no matter how many times I read it I have to sit with myself and it's because I think that he accomplished something in that where that's part of the unfolding of what it means to be moral it's not just about following a bunch of rules but he's just making you reflect on your own life and how judgmental are you it seems to me that with this idea of the possibility of more language coming up that there's an element of humility in being the moral person that we should do this thought experiment of right now we are doing something absurd or stupid or or awful, what in a hundred years are they going to look back on us and say they did what? Because we do that to the, you know, to the past. We're like, what were they thinking? Which means that we're doing something right now. And I think that what I'm getting from, from your work is just this idea of progress, of humility, of asking the questions, being available to be reflective in order to be moral instead of just like finger wagging and presenting a bunch of rules. Yeah, I agree with that. There, there are so many different ways you could divide up different camps of moral philosopher or moral ideals, I guess. Here's one, <laughs> which I, I think about a lot, is you could divide moral philosophers who think that the ideal kind of moral agent or moral person is someone who's achieved some kind of state of perfection. Sometimes Socrates talks this way, although he, his life doesn't really bear it out because he's like constantly trying to learn what he doesn't know, right? But sometimes you find that in Plato, sometimes you find it in Kant. But there's a certain kind of moral philosopher who's drawn to the idea that, well, the goal is to attain some kind of state of perfection and then be there, dwell in that. Be like Rudy, be the master of the universe and stay there. Just like Rudy. Um, yeah, just be like the Rudy. title so, of this, be like Rudy. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, I don't want, I, there can only be one master, okay? That's, I don't want to never need a bunch of masters out there, mm -hmm. just one. Yeah, master. right. That's it's well said. That's exactly what the master should say. Yeah. So there's that kind of moral philosopher who's drawn towards, okay, like, I want to get to the state of perfection where I've got my principles, I've got my values, they are unimpeachable, and I, let me like stay in this state. There's another kind of philosopher who I, or moral philosopher who's drawn more towards an ideal of like movement, of constantly coming up the, against the limits of what they can express, of what their received conception of what's valuable and important is. I think the existentialist are very much like this. What they value is less arriving at some final attainable state, but more something like that constant movement, that constant like growing in response to failure and realizing that one was in error. So for them, and I think Iris Murdoch is in this camp too. I think Aristotle's in this camp. The virtuous person or the ideal moral person is someone who's developed a kind of rational vulnerability to realizing that they're at the limits of either what they can put into words or what their values are or what their concepts are. Because, well, for that kind of philosopher, I think the process of trying to become better or the process of like a moral education is part of a good life rather than just like a dispensable necessary means to a good life. That's perfect. We'll, we'll end mm -hmm. there. Matthew, thank you. The book is Moral Articulation on the Development of New Moral Concepts. Thank you so much for coming on Goodies in the Details. This is wonderful. Yeah, it was a delight. Thank you so much. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod. If you'd like to get in touch, we're at Good is in the Details Pod at gmail.com and we're also on Facebook, Good is in the Details Pod. We'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, avonmoreinc.com. You've heard me talk about them. All you need for your next bridge party, cards, coasters, tallies. Avonmore is a small business that started in the 90s and grew to a global sensation among bridge fans. Go to avonmoreinc.com. 
for all of your bridge party needs. Let them know that Good is in the Detail sent you. I'll link them in the show notes. I'll also link Matthew's work in the show notes. You want to check that out? Okay. Until next time. Bye.